Hello and welcome to the Hall of Fame video game podcast starring Matt Levy and Mike Staub. We love video games and have embarked on a journey to index the greatest video games of all time into our very own Hall of Fame. Here's the show. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Hey, Matt, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me for another epic episode of our Hall of Fame pod. We have some awesome, awesome games on the horizon and a special one this week that we want to talk about with our congregation. That's right. And this grueling battle will end with this game being the victor. Uh, One of the best launch games, I think, of all time. A very special game. And that's actually what I wanted to ask you before we even get into the game itself. Because here we're talking about a launch game today. What would you say are some of the best launch games of all time? Okay, well, it, it's weird because the way we look at it is different based on region, right? So if you go back and you look at your launch titles, it's like, if we look at the NES launch title, you have Super Mario Brothers in that launch in the NES. But the, Super, the, but the Famicom didn't launch with Super Mario Brothers. It, right. That came out two years later. So if, if we're going talking- North America strictly then, let's say. North America strictly best launch games of all time. Uh, I would definitely say Super Mario Brothers, right? Yep. Then I would also say Super Mario World. Sure. I mean, you could probably pick one from every Nintendo game to be Mario 64, every- probably. Mario, Mario 64, Smash Brothers Melee, Breath of the Wild. Yep. These are all like really just stellar. And the common theme is that it's usually a Nintendo console that has that killer launch. When you look at sometimes Xbox and PlayStations, the, hill- the killer hits don't come till later. Except, I'd say, in this case. In this case, I would definitely say Halo uh, is definitely probably a killer launch title. Sure. Um, PS3 didn't really have a great launch title. I bought a PS2 at launch. Nothing really that good. The PS2 stuff really didn't get good for like a year. For like a year. I think the best PS2 PS2 games, like if the best games started coming out in 2001 with like Metal Gear Solid 2, Final Fantasy X... Uh, Devil May Cry, stuff like that. Xbox had Halo, Xbox 360. 360, really you had no. Perfect Dark at launch was not a good game. There were a couple yeah. other like sports games. Yeah. But that's usually the case. I mean, usually the case is you get a racing game, you get maybe a fighting game that's okay. You get maybe a sports game in there and, and that's it. Yeah, there's usually, we as the, we nerds who pay the nerd tax for things, that means we have to get the console as soon as it comes out. We pay top price for it or always it's like insult to injury, right? It's like you've already paid more for this console than you'll <laughs> ever pay. And then the games that come out with it aren't that great. It's beautiful, though, to have like backwards compatibility, though. So if you're like a PlayStation 2 and you got all the PlayStation 1 library and you can play Final Fantasy 9 that first right. year, that's great. Or if you've got a PS5 and like, all right, cool, I played through Miles Morales. I played a bit of uh, Demon Souls. Now I can go back and play stuff like Ghost of Tsushima. I could play Horizon Zero Dawn. I could play God of War. And they all look way, way better. So there's that way of kind of like bolstering. But for the most part, I think you're right. When you buy a launch console... You're not instantly rewarded. You're you're no. you are having to pay that tax, and you do have to wait. And sometimes you're smartest waiting a year or two to then have a, a a library of games to jump into. Yeah, yeah. It's always better to buy a console if you want to be smart about it. It's always better to buy a console a year, two years, three years later. Because if you were to buy a PlayStation for three or four years into its life, a six-year life cycle, you would have had so many cheap and amazing games available for you to play. Launch lineups are always kind of weak. It, they're always kind of weak. It's kind of true across the board. But as you said, 
ever since the SNES generation, ever since generation, I think that's generation four. Uh, I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. I think it's generation. Everyone four. names the generations differently as far as what they consider. Yeah. I think I think us and the people over at Long Island Retro Gaming consider the Super Nintendo Genesis generation to be generation four. Right. I know that because I think I, I did a hour and a half long video <laughs> blog about it with them for their virtual convention, which was great. Check it out. It's online somewhere. And after that generation, that generation proved that you could bring fighting games from the arcade home with the home release of games like Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat. And ever since then, it seems like at launch or within what they now call the launch window, which right. is- which, which now is like a year. The launch window is like six months after the launch system comes out. It's, 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 it's a little ridiculous, but if we're going to even consider the launch window like two or three months, which seems fitting to me, just because, especially if a game comes out and like a console comes out in like September, October for the holidays, it's like, ah, I could consider that whole holiday season like part of the launch. It seems like every launch of every console within that small launch window, there is at least one fighting game that needs to launch. We can talk about that with like the PlayStation 1 had stuff like Street Fighter the movie, Battle Arena Toshinden, Mortal Kombat 3, the, the Sega Saturn had... Virtual Fighter. Virtual Fighter, yeah. Virtual Fighter. And then when you get to later console generations, like your PlayStation 2 had Tekken Tag Tournament and and Xbox had Dead or Alive and the GameCube had Super Smash Brothers Melee. And then as we go continue further on, most consoles within their launch window have like a really solid fighting game. Even the Switch got that final version of Street Fighter 2 very close to launch. So when we're talking about the Dreamcast, which we're talking about today, we have one of the greatest launch games of all time in Soul Calibur, which to me represents not only a great launch game, it represents a great fighting game, and it represents really everything the Dreamcast and Sega had been trying to do for almost 20 years at this point. Sega, and we've talked about this ad nauseum on this podcast, everything that Sega has always was always trying to do at that time was to bring the arcade experience home. Yeah. Nintendo diverted from that path, right, with the Super Nintendo. But what, what Sega was always trying to do is they were trying to bring the arcade experience home because Sega, at the heart and soul of that company, is an arcade games company. They make the arcade cabinets in Japan. They make amazing arcade games. They make the best arcade racing games. They probably make the best arcade light gun games. They make some of the best arcade fighting games. So it makes sense that when you have a new console coming out like the Dreamcast, you're going to continue with that arcade experience. And if you look at the Dreamcast launch library, outside of Sonic Adventure, which is like the silly putty of video games, if you look at it now, and you have stuff like Mortal Kombat Gold, Power Stone, NFL Blitz 2000, House of the Dead 2, Soul Calibur, Crazy Taxi, Marvel vs. Capcom, right? These are all arcade games. Hydro Thunder. And oh. I think this was the first time, Mike, they were able to fully realize their idea of making an arcade machine. And the games in the past never looked and felt truly like an arcade experience until the Dreamcast. Nope. And when you look at these games, they look and feel and play actually even better 
than they would have if they were an arcade machine with the Dreamcast controller in your home. The graphics, the music, the sounds, everything felt better, but it felt like that true arcade experience. And I think that's why today they are better as a game developer than they are in the hardware world. People can argue about that, but now I think they've found their, their fitting. I think with Sega and now obviously Soul Calibur is a Namco game, yep. but if you want to talk about Sega, their home hardware was never great. It was never great. It was never the best. It never, like it kind of competed for a little while, but it's their arcade pedigree that always stands out. Like when we're talking about hardware with Sega, I'm not talking about their arcade hardware. Their arcade hardware is the arcade hardware, right? It's right. the arcade hardware that you would play in arcades in Japan. If you go to a Japan, the arcades, there's so many of them are run and operated by Sega. Yeah. And you'll walk in and you'll see Crazy Taxi, House of the Dead, mm -hmm. all of these different games. Yeah. And then you have, but bringing that home, it's like you said, it's their software and their arcade software really, really runs things. Uh, and like well. you said, this is a Namco game. Now, Namco, this is not their own fighting series. They are known for getting involved in many different Tekken being, I'd say, their other big tentpole as far as fighting series. But they, they dabble in a lot of different fighting series. But Soul Calibur, the game we're talking about today, was not a known property. They, it was a game that this, there was a prequel to this, but was not in the Soul Calibur title. No, so I played Soul Edge a mm -hmm. lot on the PlayStation. I had Soul Edge or Soul Blade, I think is what it might've been when they brought it to PlayStation. And I loved Soul Edge. My brother and I would play that game like crazy. And we, we, thought, it was, we thought it was awesome. There was like a weird adventure mode that you could play it as. There was like all this great stuff. So I remember playing Soul Blade and Soul, or Soul Edge, whatever you want to call it, quite a bit. And so they use a lot of characters too. A lot of the same. That characters. half the roster carried over yeah. from that game. Well, half, yeah, half the half the roster and like some of the characters also changed a little bit. I think, like for example, I think you have Siegfried in in Soul Edge, Soul Blade, who becomes Nightmare when he gets corrupted by the Soul mm -hmm. Soul Blade or the Soul Caliber. I mean, there's all different swords and stuff like that, and that's really what the beauty of this series is. It's a weapons-based fighting game that is way better than Bushido Blade, by the way, because um, Bushido Blade is, is, is bad. And it's, it's way better than that. And it's a game where you can, for the most part, especially as we even get into later installments, it's all about customizing your version of that character with the weapon that they use. So every character has this collection of weapons that you can switch around and then really make them, make them your own that have their benefits and, and their, their detriments. So back in 1999, when this game comes out, I know you have played fighting games before. I had two. I played Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, many different arcade games and fighters. What did this game mean to you? And, and when did you first get into it, Mike? So I played Soul Calibur probably the first time in the arcade, I think, uh, if I'm remembering properly. It was definitely in the arcade for a while before it came over to Dreamcast in 1999. So I definitely played in the arcade because... I loved Soul Edge and Soul Blade. And when I saw Soul Calibur, I was like, oh, is this the same thing? And I remember seeing like Cervantes, who was in, in Soul Edge. I go, oh, maybe this is the same game. Maybe this, is, maybe this is just something different. And I remember playing it and really enjoying it in the arcade very little. Very little. And then I got a Dreamcast on launch. And you had to have Soul Calibur, right? You had to have Soul Calibur. I, I had to have Marvel versus Capcom. But <laughs> you, you had to have Soul Calibur. That was like the game to own. It was like yeah. that and 
and Marvelous Capcom, Crazy Taxi. Crazy Taxi was that silly game that you picked up and played here and there. But this game, I think, was the must-have game. This was that launch title that even if you didn't like fighting games, there was something about it that grabbed you and pulled you in that you had never seen at the home console before. Never. And it was impressive. It was visually impressive. It was mechanically impressive. It still looks pretty good. And I think that the series really hasn't gotten back to the quality of these like first two soul caliber games. I think that they're, they're, they're chasing, they're chasing that greatness. And it's just, I don't know why it's not there. They might be too complicated now, but there was something really amazing about playing a game that looked as good as it did in the arcade at home. And really with nothing, no, with no trade-offs really. Yeah, and I think this is something that all fighting series go through. You look at Street of Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Tekken, they have their peaks and valleys where some games just don't hit. And this game, the original, I agree with you, they've been chasing this. And this was a 3D arena fighter, which was sort of rare at the time. Right now, there's dozens of them, but most of them pre-dating this, they were 2D fighters where you just had a 2D background. So I think this was evolutionary at the time. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that it pushed it forward. You did have your 3D fighters in games like, you had games like Tekken and Virtual Fighter, but they weren't as all encompassing and they weren't, they didn't feel as 3D as something like Soul Calibur did and still kind of does. And the, you had like other fighting games that were kind of also trying to mess with 3D in different ways. Like if you ever go and play Power Stone, which is another Dreamcast launch window game. That is like a fighting game that is a 3D arena fighting game, but it's almost like top down to a degree. And it's, it allows, gives you a lot more freedom. But Soul Calibur is still at its core, a very technical fighting game that really kind of uses the 3D space to, yeah. I think, a great advantage. And I think different than Virtua Fighter and Tekken at the time, which I still look at Virtua Fighter. And I always thought that game was janky when it came out. It, it has not aged well, the original Virtua. Yeah, the blocky like, characters it's like, moving. It's, it's like Lego people fighting. They look like you know? Lego people now. But I think what separates this game is it's very much weapon-based as far mm -hmm. as the characters. Mm -hmm. Each character has similar but more distinct and, and unique weapons to each character. And whether you're playing as Yoshimitsu, Moxie, Asaroth, Nightmare, they all have their own unique fighting style and weapons, which is kind of unique. Most fighters don't have weapons. Usually it's hand-to-hand -hand combat. Yeah, usually it's hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is kind of almost more in the vein of like a, a, a samurai showdown or maybe samurai spirits, as you call it, over in the other side of the world. A samurai showdown where it's all about the weapon and the character using that weapon. And as we've said before in the podcast, these companies borrow from each other all the time. So it would make a lot of sense if Namco was like, hey, let's make a fighting game, but let's try to see if we can make our version of something like Samurai Showdown where it's going to be based on the characters, but also based on the weapons that they use. So if you have someone like Nightmare with his giant great sword, or you have someone like, I'm going to mix up which characters are in which games at this point, just to let everyone know, because there's so many of these games... And I always forget who's in which. But you have characters like, like Nightmare, who's got a great sword. Yoshimitsu, like you said before, who's got like, uh, is like some sort of weird, evil, I don't know, samurai <laughs> thing. Uh, and then you have characters like Ivy, who have that whip. 
Yeah. Which is different. So it's all these different characters and very, very interesting. And, or you have like Cervantes, who's got like the two swords. The two, yeah. And then Mr. Rugi's like your standard samurai yep. character who, and then, then you have Valdo, which I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. Very, with that some character. creepy, very creepy. That, that's some, that is some weird, <laughs> that is some Renaissance creep. How about, how about Lizard Man? I mean, I just love the, the name in itself. Hey, listen, never, never bash the Lizard Man. Okay. <laughs> I, I fought so many of those Lizard Men while playing the adventure mode of Soul Calibur 2 on my GameCube. There was a lot of Lizard Men that got thrown off the ring. Totally. And that, throwing out of the ring, that's, that's a nice jumping point there because not all fighters have an out of bounds or if you could fall out, you could push them out. Being it's a 3D arena fighter, you have that other thing to consider in that, yes, you can fall off the level. Yeah, like a fool. <laughs> or you can get thrown off the level by someone else, which is my favorite thing to do. It's like That's push the, them and throw them out. It is the worst when that happens to you. You just feel like a fool. No, it's, it, you know, it's, it's even more demoralizing than getting like smash attacked in uh in super smash brothers and like seeing like the screen go red like that's kind of demoralizing but like when you just accidentally like trip out of the ring and lose a uh, match in soul caliber no thanks and then you have this eight-way movement system and i think mm -hmm. that's what makes the 3d arena really work here is that it, the characters feel smooth there is a very as uh, much freedom to the movement so when you are moving a certain characters now obviously not like nightmare who's a little sluggish and a little bigger and hulker but some of the other ones have this smoother freedom to them and the movement i think is really nice oh yeah i i agree it's very fluid it feels much more organic than something like tekken uh, i always feel tekken feels like i'm like it's like jerky and i like i like tekken to a degree i'm not a big 3d fighting guy to be perfectly honest here so the fact that i like soul caliber as much as i do and continued to play the series really intensely through Soul Calibers 2, 3, and a little bit of 4, because I wanted to play as Darth Vader, you do have a you do, you do have less of that, I feel. Yeah, I, mean, I agree oh. with you. And I'm so glad you said that, Mike, because I'm not a traditionally a fan of 3D fighters either, because I feel like there's so many other elements at play that the skill elements almost go out the window. In a 2D yeah. fighter, it's more controlled, the environment, yeah. so you can focus more on the attacks, the blocking, and the movements. In a 3D fighter, because people can jump over you, roll behind you, move behind you. I played a lot of uh, the Naruto Clash of the Ninja series, which is a 3D fighter. And sometimes someone will just jump behind you and then attack you. And you feel like you just got fooled. And that's a part of this kind of fluid system. But Soul Calibur, for some reason, it hooked me in. It brought me in. And I loved, I played this game for hours and hours and weekends on end. And even though it's, it's not the deepest game in the world, but it's still great. It's still great because it does what arcade games are supposed to do. It's supposed to offer you a quick, rewarding experience that makes it feel like it was worth your quarter or 50 cents or dollar. I don't know how much they charge at arcades now. They don't have coins anymore. We don't use quarters at arcades anymore. We use these nebulous points that we have no idea what they mean. That so way, like, when you scan it, it's probably $3. Then. <laughs> two, or three, two or three bucks, easy. But that's what an arcade game should do, right? You should be able to jump into an arcade game no matter who you are, walk up to the machine, hit the start button, and be able to at least play it. Now, will you be any good? Who knows? But you might—you should be able to beat a couple of stages. But it's fun when, you, when you're Moxie and you pull out his nunchucks and you somehow manage to pull out some crazy combo. 
And even if you're just button mashing, it's fun and it's great. And like you said, it's quick. The battles are quick. Traditionally, you need a few wins to, to win the round. Yeah. And, and that's sort of traditional now in fighters that it's not just one match that wins the whole round. Yeah. But that, that's that arcade feel, like, like you said. It's got to be easy to grasp. It's got to be easy to get into. You have to be able to understand it from the outset. But if you really want to get good, you have to like, I don't know, study it. You have to like count frames and learn every move and learn every other character's move to know what when what frames their moves take up. You fighting game players out there, anyone <laughs> who's listening, oh my God, like the amount of work that you put into to play like three rounds of Street Fighter is like, unbelievably like respectable and like and like it's remarkable because like i've played a bunch of these fighting games online and i've pretty much gotten beat most of the time all of the time and you could tell how good the players are like they know exactly what you're going to do before you even do it and a game like soul caliber is definitely about that because there is more of a defense more defense at play in soul caliber because you're using this weapon system and i think it does it a lot better than a game like dead or alive does i agree i uh, think some I, characters because of their weapons you can tell how far away you should stand as far as mm -hmm, distance and mm -hmm. spacing yourselves yeah. and how quick a character can move based on who they're playing and how quick they can actually bridge the gap between you so yeah i think there's a lot of studying when it comes to knowing what the ca other characters can do and who you're facing. And like we've said before, there's good amongst your friends. And then there's good as far as tournament and fighting good, fighting games good. You're a hundred percent right. Because I'm pretty sure, and this is not a brag. Okay. I'm going to tell you this right now. This is not a brag. This is like a backhanded compliment. I could probably beat all my friends in most fighting games. Right, all of my friends that I hang out with regularly, I well, it's 2021. I haven't seen people in, in a year. But all my friends that I would have hang, hung out with regularly, I probably can beat most of them most of the time in most fighting games. But the second I go online, the second I go to an arcade, the second I go to a tournament, it is noob city, my friends. Noob city. I've been embarrassed so many times by people who are just like not even like amazingly good, just like really competent players. And you look like a fool and you feel like a fool, but that's how fighting games work. There's like friends good and real world good. And none of us, for the most part. We're all, we're all here. We're all just fools. Yep. And that's what's great about fighting games is you can really get to that next level that, yes, there's mastering in any game. You can master an RPG playing it. You can master Spider-Man, a game, how you, how you play it. But there's really a mastery to a fighting game the technical, the frames, as you said before. And there's something that we, I think, both appreciate when you watch those Evo matches in a fighting game. You're just sitting at the draw drops knowing, wow, this person has put in thousands of hours to get that good. The beauty of watching some of these Evo matches and even Evo matches for games like Soul Calibur or Tekken, it's not all just Street Fighter and like Marvel versus Capcom, their fights look like cutscenes. That's how good they are. And when you play someone really good, online in one of these games it's like oh wow like this is a totally different level this this person knows this character so incredibly well inside and out that it's like i'm fighting the the movie yeah. right it's like i'm fighting a movie and games like soul Calibur, when you get to 1999 you get that big boost in power from like stuff like the dreamcast you really start to see the beauty of the design at play in Soul Calibur because the game gets to move and flow and function 
like it should. I went back and I played Rival Schools not too long ago. And that's a 3D fighting game from Capcom on the PlayStation 1. And they had uh, a sequel on the on the Dreamcast. And I went back and played it. It's a 3D fighting game. And I'm just like, oh, this looks rough. But you go back and look at Soul Calibur and you're like, eh, it looks a little dated, but it's still got that flow. And you could still get it today. I think it came out in Xbox Live at some point. You're right. right. So it came to the Xbox Live Arcade in 2008. And this game is still somewhat attainable as far as getting to play. I, I would say the second, which I know they brought some unique characters to some of the consoles that was on and some of the sequels after that have added more characters, done more graphically. But there's just something about the original here that when it came out, it got perfect scores. All these different magazines and websites. And this was critically, critically acclaimed where it's actually the second highest Metacritic score with Ocarina of Time of all time. I mean, you're talking about, there's a pantheon, thousands and thousands and thousands of great games out there. This game was beloved so much when it came out. Now, is this the second best game of all time? I think you and me would both easily say no. Probably not. But that would just go on to prove that when this game came out for a fighting game on the Dreamcast at this time, this was greatness. Oh, absolutely. And I think it it really does represent just how important it is to have that launch game that game at launch that people are going to buy the console for. Now, I'm not sure how many people bought a Dreamcast for Soul Calibur. I think most people who bought the Dreamcast probably bought it one because it was new, probably bought it for Sonic Adventure. But having Soul Calibur there was like, oh, oh wait, what? And then the Dreamcast ended up becoming probably one of the best fighting game consoles like really ever. Yeah, the, the system didn't do well, but if you look at the, we've said before, the library games on it is very good. Yeah. And I don't know that this so- game sold extremely well. I don't know that it was some major success. And I don't think Soul Calibur is nearly as big as some of the other big fighting game series out there. But there's no question for people that know games and how important this game was to the Dreamcast in 1999. First off, getting a arcade experience mm-hmm. that was actually better on the console. That doesn't normally happen. They actually improved upon the arcade game for the Dreamcast. Absolutely. And like you said, that almost never happens. So it's amazing to see how much they poured into this console version. It is a bit of a shame that it's not the easiest to get your hands on. Like, obviously, yes, you said this on Xbox Live Arcade, but even still, I would love this game to no, it doesn't need a remake, but I would love this game to get maybe maybe a remaster. Just put it out there on PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X, PC, Switch. Just put it on all these consoles. I think people would really enjoy playing the original Soul Calibur again. Yeah. Because you don't have to worry about licenses. There's not a bunch of like guest characters that they brought in. And you could really just play the original game in in its in its close to its purest form. Yeah, and I, if I remember correctly, back at that time, I had friends that hated fighting games and loved playing this game. There's something magical about a fighting game that can bring anyone in. And this was that kind of arcade, as you said, you walk up to it and you play and you have fun and there's a hook to it and trying out all the different characters because they are so different. And I think a new generation of people would love to play this game. Oh, I think so. I think people would be all about it. Now, Soul Calibur, what I also love about this series is this kind of feels like one of the first series that really emphasized, ultimately, as we go further on, the usage of guest characters that aren't 
native to the series. And I think while this didn't happen in the original Soul Calibur, I'm not sure if we're going to talk about the other Soul Calibur games on this podcast. So we really have to kind of like at least touch the top, touch base on that topic where Soul Calibur was amazing. And then they made a sequel. And the sequel was like one of the first fighting games I really remember that was just like, hey guys, to sell this game, probably, probably just to entice people to buy it, we're going to include guest characters that will make you buy this game. So on for this Soul was Calibur the 2, GameCube, Xbox, and PlayStation 2 generation, correct? Yep, yep. GameCube, Xbox, and PS2 all had their own version of Soul Calibur 2. And it's great. I actually I actually probably played Soul Calibur 2 more than I played the original. I loved Soul Calibur 2. I played a ton of that game. That game was on all three consoles, and each console got a different guest character. So your Xbox, you had Spawn who is now in Mortal Kombat. So Spawn has been able to go to all different sorts of places. <laughs> he goes to had, the portal. He he'll, he'll be fine. He, he just, he spawned, whatever. McFarlane loves money, so he'll take it. So you had Spawn in on the Xbox version. The PS2 version had Hihachi from Tekken, which makes a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense being that it's also a Namco property. And this was before Kratos was a thing. Yeah. So like, I think now if you're going to include a specific PlayStation guest character, I think Kratos is actually a really good pick. Yep. And then on the GameCube, we got Link, which I bought the GameCube version because I wanted to play the game as Link, which I found out later on Link is not legal in tournaments because he's not in all three games. And uh, Link was was a blast to play as. He fit perfectly. They put all of his broken moves in that game, like his downward strike, which like just knocks people out of the ring. And then as the, the Soul Calibur series has kind of grown... We've seen more and more of these guest characters show up. Now, Soul Calibur 3 was a weird game because it was lo- it was locked to the PS2, which I still don't understand how you took a game that was like the multi-platform game. When Soul Calibur 2 was coming out, that was very hyped. I mean, that's probably the height of the hype of the series. Yeah. It was weird that they would go back to a console exclusive unless there was a lot of money thrown at them. It's strange. The only thing that makes sense was that Soul Calibur 2 must have been successful, probably the most successful on the PS2 because most people had PS2s. And maybe Namco made a deal with Sony to make an exclusive. They had to have gotten money for it because there's no other reason. And then there are no guest characters in Soul Calibur 3, which is weird. But then Soul Calibur 4, for reasons I have no idea why, other than obviously money, they put in Darth Vader, Yoda, and The Apprentice from Star Wars, which is which is weird. But this is when that whole Force Unleashed thing was happening. So it was like some sort of crossover marketing. And then that was Soul Calibur 4. Soul Calibur 5, I, don't, I didn't play. So I have no idea who's that in Soul was the Calibur one 5. that I passed on as well. It's interesting why Soul Calibur Five wasn't a bigger deal than it was, but that was the game I skipped entirely. Yeah, I totally skipped Soul Calibur Five, and then Soul Calibur Six would get. If you want to talk about guest characters, you had Halmaru from from Samurai Showdown, which makes sense, right? As we we discussed before, and then you had Geralt of Rivia from The Witcher. Which also kind of makes sense. So it, it's kind of started this this trend of guest characters. And now guest characters are like, I don't want to use the word expected, but I feel like it's become such a part of the fighting game. Yeah, I mean, Mortal Kombat world. 11, I think, yeah. has done it more than anyone. And it's that, oh, if we bring in a guest character, we'll get more money in DLC. It'll bring people back into our game. Maybe they won't trade it in and sell it. So they do these DLC packs and these DLC season passes, but some of the weird, strange characters 
that they have brought into that universe from, I believe, like Freddy Krueger is one of them. I believe. Yeah, they they did. They I don't know the difference. I haven't played the Joker. Kombat. I know is in the newest one. Joker's in one of them. I haven't really played Mortal Kombat 10 or 11 that much, but I know one of them was like all horror movie people. So it was like Jason, Leatherface, Freddy Krueger. And there was one of them that and then one of them had like Spawn and the Joker and these other characters. And then Injustice had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in it. Injustice <laughs> I mean, 2. It's so crazy what, what some of these games do with crossovers. And I think it's fun. I mean, Smash Great. Brothers is doing it too. I mean, their own way. Of course. So. Of course. I, I was going to say, it's it's forget it. You want to talk about expected guest characters. Now, with Smash Brothers, if you don't put guest characters in, the fan base hates you. That's pretty much how it works. It's like, oh, why would you put another Nintendo character in a Nintendo-developed game? Like, really, why would you do that? It should have been... XYZ random character from a JRPG that like five people have played. Like that's how the universe is now. And I and think that's Soul Calibur's I fault. Think, I think Marvel versus Capcom did it too. I think sometimes we just want to see properties fight each other, even when it makes zero sense whatsoever. We want to see who can fight who. And I think Soul Calibur, you're right. They were the ones that really, I'd say, pushed us into this, that, this that, mode now of crossover. That's, that's the real, real beginning of crossover guest characters. Listen, I love it. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's really dumb, but like in the best ways possible. And arcade games and video games in the in general, it was like Soul Calibur and, and like Ur Guys, right? That really started like this whole guest character thing. And even they never made any more Ur Guys games. So uh, Soul Calibur is the only one that counts. It's it's great, and I love that it's part of the fighting game mythos that like all these fighting games kind of exist in this strange multiverse, and they love crossing over with each other. I mean, we had a Street Fighter Tekken game. Akuma showed up in, in Tekken 7. So this is all really cool stuff. I think even Noctis shows up in Tekken 7, but hmm. I, I have to take a look at that from Final Fantasy 15. And that's kind of become what the, what the, what the, the genre is kind of about. And like you said, who doesn't want to see these characters fight each other? If Namco wants to continue to do this and they want to continue to bring these weapon fighters into their games, why not put... They have the Shonen Jump license... Why not put characters like uh, like Kenshin in a Soul Calibur game? Why not? You got the license, you might as well run with it. But the real game that we really need has nothing to do with Soul Calibur, but it's shown in Jump versus or Jump All Stars versus Capcom. Make the game, guys. Yeah, that's all I'm telling you to do. We're, but we're asking for it, even if we're not the best fighting experts in the world. Even if every time I go to a tourney or play online, I get served a nice bowl of humble porridge. I still love my fighting games. So. Yes, I think Soul Calibur games have peaked and valued. I think we, we know the original, the essence of this game, what it meant to the Dreamcast and how good it was back then. It's been nice to think back of playing this game in its purest form back then. And anything else, Mike, on Soul Calibur before we close it out? I think it's a dynamite game. I think it's a, it's got some really great games in the series, especially Soul Calibur and Soul Calibur 2 are very, very good. I think they changed the landscape of how fighting games can be created and and what we expect from them. And I think that very few games have been able to do what Soul Calibur did well, and few of them have been able to do it as as well as Soul Calibur did. And I think that franchise is a franchise that might feel a little underrepresented and could use some more, eh, it could use a boost, right? It could use a little bit of a boost. But after having this conversation, like part of me wants to try to see if I can find Soul Calibur to play it now again 
because I haven't played it in a while. And I kind of want to try Soul Calibur 6 out now because I, I'm remembering how much fun I had with Soul Calibur back in 1999-2000. Excellent. Well said, Mike. And now that brings us to what have you been playing? What have I been playing? Okay, so I was playing Mother 3 on on the uh, Game Boy Advance, and Mother 3 is really good. It's it's great because it's broken down into chapters. So each chapter seems like it's a few hours long, and there's like seven or eight chapters. It's great to just like sit down, play through a chapter, and that chapter's dialogue and story and, and, and ends. So then you could kind of put the game down for a little bit and play something else, which is not usually what I like to do, but... It's something that gives you a breaking point. And I think more RPGs could benefit from having a, a chapter-based structure. I really like Mother 3. I think Mother 3 is, is a great game. I can totally see why it was never localized. Playing it, there's some dark stuff that goes on in Mother 3 very early on in the game. And I could totally see why Nintendo might have been like, that's not really our brand image in, in America. We might not want to localize this. Also, the game came out in 2006. So I don't know if Nintendo was super keen on localizing and spending the money on localizing and, and importing over Mother 3 when the, play, when the DS Lite was really starting to take off. I don't know if they were ready to like localize a GBA game. But if you want to play, if you're a big fan of Earthbound, you should totally check this out. I've also been playing Monster Hunter Rise a little bit. And Monster Hunter Rise is, is a lot of fun. It's a series I've never played before. I've been told that Monster Hunter Rise is like the best starting point for a new player comparable to like other Monster Hunter games. There's a lot to learn and a lot to do and a lot to manage. But the set pieces and the giant monster fights feel very rewarding. They take forever. They take so long to defeat one of these monsters. Like I was fighting a monster and I'm not playing with anyone online, which is dumb. I should be playing with people online. But I was fighting some of these monsters and we're talking 20, 30 minutes to, to fight and, and defeat this thing. But there is that sense of accomplishment when you beat one of these monsters and then you could you know, get stuff from them and take it back and craft new armor or craft new weapons or do all this stuff. So you're always constantly kind of making your character just a little better here and there. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it's on the Switch and it runs very, very well. It looks amazing. I haven't played it online yet, but I hope to be able to do that soon. And it is a lot of fun. And I'm really enjoying my time with, with Monster Hunter Rise. Yeah, Monster Hunter Rise seems to be all the rage right now. And mm -hmm. I had dabbled in the other Switch game. I think it's Monster Hunter Ultimate, which was the kind of the deluxe version of I think, a 3DS or Wii title. And it still kind of looks like a 3DS or Wii title. This game, I downloaded the demo because I know yeah. everyone's into it. And it does look and run much, much better. It does look and run very well. I played the, there was easy, medium or hard on the demo and I picked the easy one. And like you, I found it to be fun, but it did take me probably 20 something minutes to take down that one creature, dinosaur, whatever I was fighting. And I don't know if it's going to hook me in and maybe I should be playing online. Maybe I should buy it and play with other people because then maybe then you'll because my computer partners were pretty dumb, like some yeah. of these games can be. Yeah, But we'll see. That it, it, I can see how this game can be fun to a large group of people. Yeah, I think in the end, it's, it's about, it's something that I usually get frustrated with when I'm told this as a gamer. It's like, hey, Monster Hunter takes a little while to get into. You got to really put some time in at the beginning. And like, 
as someone who's who grew up in the 80s and 90s, I'm like, no, the game should be good right away. And that's always my criticism of online RPGs, MMOs, right? It's always like, well, game really opens up when you get to level 60. I'm like, well, that's going to take me six months. So why, why am I going to waste six months playing a game that doesn't get good for a while? I'm starting to not feel that way about things as I get older and I get more um, relaxed in my gaming and my gaming mindset. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff on the front end of Monster Hunter Rise that you have to like figure out and learn, but I'm going to keep chugging away at it. I don't think I'm going to play it like religiously, but I think I'm going to maybe hop in maybe a few times a week, fight some monsters, maybe start playing online a little bit with people who are interested in playing and kind of keep it as something that it's like, this is a game I can play online here and there with friends. Yeah, very cool. Very cool, Mike. What about I you? have I have almost and I say almost completed Miles Morales. Mike messaged me and he said, hey, I'm ready to record. And I paused my game as I was about to enter the final boss battle. Oh, very so, cool. So it's a short game. I'm enjoying it. I know I've talked about it a few times before. I'm enjoying it very much so, but I'm also happy that I'm, I'm closing this chapter and finishing it off. Yeah, it's a great game. It's, a, it's like I said, it's, it's a much tighter experience than the original Spider-Man game. I think it's a really great companion piece for that game. Uh, I loved the Miles Morales game. I thought it was really great. I thought his his powers were uniquely used and uh, it did feel it does feel like a different game than the original Spider-Man. Not not completely, but it does feel like a different game. And I know there's a hook there so people want to hunt down all these things in the world. I don't know if I'm actually going to go through and get all the underground caches and all of the music notes that your uncle wants you to uncover. So I don't know if you got into all that. No, I didn't. I, like I, I've been very open about this on the podcast. I'm like a 70% kind of guy. There gets us to a point where it's just like, all right, I'm done. I just want to beat the game and move on. Yep. I hear you. So, so that's where I'm at. I did start playing another game that I will share with you guys next week. That'll be a little tease. I'm about five hours into a game I never played before. A very known game. So I think it'll be a fun one to discuss next week. So let me think. <laughs> I'm going to try to figure this out. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let that sink in a little bit. So I think that's where we'll close off our conversation for today, Mike. Okay. Uh, I want to, as always, thank you for being a wonderful co-host and for joining me on this journey. We have some awesome, awesome games for you guys. And Mike, if you could tell everyone where people could find you. First of all, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here on the uh, Hall of Fame podcast. I, I love this podcast. I think all the other stuff that you, you're all doing too with the other with the other mediums are also excellent. So everyone out there who's into movies and, and video games and a little bit of theater here and there, definitely check out more of the episodes on the Hall of Fame podcast. Great, great stuff that's coming out. Matt, you do a terrific job. So that's one place you can always find me is you can find me here on the Hall of Fame podcast every week. And then you can find me elsewhere on the internet. I have a podcast of my own called How About This? where I think we're like 14 or 15 episodes in right now, where we take properties that you might have loved or still love. Like, I don't know, everything from Ghostbusters to Super Mario Brothers to Jurassic Park to King Kong. And we give our pitch on how we would improve it or make a new movie, make a new series, transfer it to a different medium. We do stuff like that. And that's something that comes out every week, usually on Thursdays. So you can follow us at Facebook and Instagram and how about this pod. And then I'm in a band called Bad Mary. So you can find us all over the internet, badmary.com, at badmaryband on Twitter and Instagram. 
uh, twitch.tv slash bad Mary band. And we've been, we've been streaming video games now once a week. And it is, it has been a very fun experience because um, Amanda, our singer and my wife is mostly terrible at video games, but we've been having a lot of fun kind of jumping on the Twitch train and having a lot of fun there. And it's something that we do every week. We also do live shows every week and live rehearsals every week. So we're on Twitch like three days a week there. And then me, you can find me on Instagram at the Mike Staub and the underscore Mike underscore Staub, as well as Twitter at the underscore Mike underscore Staub. I just post a lot of stuff, mostly about video games, sometimes about comic books, sometimes about movies, sometimes about music. So yeah, it's a lot, but you can find me out there. Please feel free to do so. But most, if you're going to follow anything of what I'm doing, obviously, please continue to follow the Hall of Fame podcast because this is a joy to work on and a joy to be a part of. And then most of the other stuff just, just kind of filters through my Bad Mary stuff. So the podcast and the band, everything else will be around. Yeah, guys, there's a lot of really, really great content and entertainment that Mike is a part of. So please check it all out. Whether you're a music fan, gaming, his podcast, it's a lot of really fun stuff. So my partner here, Mike Staub, I'm Matthew Levy. Thank you guys very much. And we are looking forward to seeing you guys next time. Yeah. From Mike and Matt, thank you for listening to the Hall of Fame Game Podcast. Check us out on Instagram at Hall of Fame Pod or email us at thehalloffamepod at gmail.com. Please leave us a review and be sure to tune in next time.